All right, the election is going to be called here October 24th. It will be voting day. Premier John Horgan set to make it official here at the top of the hour. He has a news conference outside his home in Langford near Victoria. Uh, where he will confirm that he has been to see the Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin. British Columbians will be going to the polls in a snap election. It's been kind of the worst-kept secret in British Columbia here for the past couple of weeks. But, yeah, it's on. Premier John Horgan, he's going for it here, trying to get that majority government. Let's check in with Vaughn Palmer now, Vancouver Sun political reporter. Vaughn, thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, thanks for asking me, Mike. It's always a pleasure, and you're sounding great on the radio. Well, thank you very much. It's very kind of you to say. What do you think about this election call today? Well, you know, uh, in 2013, we had a provincial election. Uh, the New Democrats were supremely confident they were going to win. They lost. In yeah. 2017, we had a provincial election. The B.C. Liberals were supremely confident they were going to win. They lost their majority. So I say, yes, the New Democrats are damn sure they got this one in the bag. It's a slam dunk. Uh, they're going to win. And I'm going to wait and <laughs> see what the voters say about all this. <laughs> okay, yeah, we've seen the best laid plans of politicians go, go in the other direction in this province for sure. What do you think the big risk is for Horgan in this one? Uh, Well, I think, first of all, you're going in the middle of a pandemic and nobody knows what the numbers are going to be. We're going to get numbers this afternoon. Nobody knows what they are. Nobody knows how this thing is going to unfold. So there's a huge risk there. I think the other risk is the backlash. You've been talking about that this morning. I've heard from a lot of people who say, I think John Horgan's done a good job and I would be considering him for re-election, but I don't think this is the right time for an election. And the other thing is, I know you've heard it, you mentioned it, the New Democrats are absolutely sure this guy, Wilkinson, who's leading the Liberals is a big zero, right? It's not, "Ah, we can beat him in a debate. Well, I will just point out that we had a debate in this province between Wilkinson and Horgan in 2018 on the proportional referendum, uh, referendum, and Wilkinson won it. Yeah. You know, Horgan was all over the map and doing his, you know, nifty woke and we're lit and all this stuff. And Wilkinson just stayed focused on this thing doesn't add up, right? So I wouldn't say it's a foregone conclusion that John Horgan wins the debate against Wilkinson, uh, or for that matter, against Firstenau. She's going to be in this too, and I see what she's got a press conference at uh, noon. Uh, The the New Democrats are sure the Greens are zeros too, right? Like they're so confident about everything. I've seen enough BC history to know that our elections don't always unfold the way that the party that calls them thinks it's going to. Well, all Horgan has to do is lean across the cabinet table and talk to Adrian Dix about that, about how these yeah. plans can, can blow up on you and, and backlash. I guess the calculation for the NDP, though, is that they're so far ahead that they've got polling numbers that I've never seen before. I saw one poll of the NDP over 50%. I've never seen that before. That they can sustain, even if there is a backlash, they're so far ahead, they win anyway. Your thoughts? Uh, I think, yes, I think you're right. That's what they see. Uh, Again, the thing I would say about those polls is, are those polls a measure of the fact that people think the government has done a good job of managing the pandemic? Are they a measure of the fact that they think Horgan has behaved well by leaving the management of the pandemic to Dix and Dr. Bonnie Henry? Uh, I don't know if those polls really are a measure of people thinking it's time for an election and I'm going to vote for John Horgan. I still think that's an open question. Okay, let's take a couple of phone calls here, Yvonne. There's been people have been waiting patiently to have their say. Ben on the line in North Vancouver. Ben, what do you think? Hi, thanks so much for having me on. You know, 
it's interesting because throwing an election when um, when uh, support is high is not unusual. In fact, it's the way our first past the post system is, is in fact designed to operate. Consolidation of power is not unusual. Um, in fact, sometimes it can be a very good thing. But of course, the question is, what about the context of this consolidation of power? And I think beyond the fact that we're in a pandemic, um, is another unique point about this certain circumstance that Horton's in is that over the last three years, and especially over the last three to six months, uh, John Horton has been blessed with basically the unobstructed support of both opposition parties. Well, yeah. Or the opposition party, the NBC Liberals, and of course, the, the green okay, okay, okay. Th- thank you for the, thank you for that. I think he raised a good point there, Vine. That one of the reasons that he's riding so high in the polls is there's been a nonpartisan effort to fight this virus, and now there it's not nonpartisan anymore. This is a, a totally brazen partisan effort here to get a majority government. So all that goodwill that he's built up here over the last few months is it potential for all of that to blow away? I think you're right. The opposition parties worked with the government. They did the right thing. You know, I mean, they they were acting in the public interest to make all of this stuff work. But a good example is the $1.5 billion economic recovery plan that the premier put out as kind of his election platform on Thursday. Well, that was voted unanimously by the legislature in March. And all the parties supported it and said, here it is. But, you know, they didn't intend it to be the NDP re-election platform, but there it is. Susan on the open line in Vancouver. Hi, Susan. Hi. Um, there's one other way that you can call, call an election, and that's called Nasera Jacera. It's the National Economic Security Reformation Act. Jacera is Global Economic Security Reformation Act. Um, it's been in the Constitution in the United States since Clinton and Obama. And uh, we're already pretty much all the way through it with Trump. The last thing he's got to do is announce it. Okay, so okay, I'm going to jump in. Susan, thanks a lot. I'm not sure where you're going with that, to be honest with you. But, Vaughn, let me ask you this. He signed an agreement with the Green Party saying he would not call an election. We've got a fixed election law in this province that says the election is in October 2021. That doesn't mean he can't do this. I mean, there's nothing illegal about what he's there's doing. Nothing, nothing illegal about it, but he did sign the agreement with the Greens not to do this. And the date that's in law is one that John Horgan put there. He he changed the date for the fixed election, so it's in there. Uh, as recently as May, in the middle of the pandemic, he put out a statement saying this CASA thing is just great. You know, it's a really good deal. It's brought stability to British Columbia. Andrew Weaver said it was a good thing, and we're still working with it, and we're bound by it. Now, now they're pretending that CASA doesn't exist. So yeah. I think one of the yeah. openings for Sonia first to know in the Greens is to point out that they respected it, and as far as they're concerned, it's still in place. This is going to be a weird election, Vaughn. You've covered a yeah. lot of them. Maybe this will be one of the weirdest ones that you and I have ever covered, but what kind of election do you think this will be? Like, Do you think the NDP will put out any kind of big promise platform, or are they just going to say, give us a mandate to keep keep you safe through this pandemic? <laughs> The, the press release count for the last three days is, is over 60. Is there anything left to promise that they, <laughs> they haven't already promised? It's going to be a very strange election, Mike. It's not clear. Are there going to be any issues other than the pandemic? I mean, yeah. I think there's a lot of people out there worried about their jobs and their houses and their future and their kids going to school and all that. Are there going to be other issues that to get traction with the voters, or is it just going to come down to whether or not we need an election in the middle of a pandemic? Yeah. Squeeze in another call here. Kathy in New West. Hi, Kathy. 
Uh, Mike, thanks for yeah. taking my call. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> as far as I'm concerned, Mr. Horgan and the NDP are morally bankrupt. And I can tell you that that's true. It's as plain as the nose on my face, Mike. Okay, thank you for the call. Vaughn, do you think a lot of people could have that reaction? I have certainly heard from New Democrats that are, and yeah. people that voted NDP or we're getting ready to do next time. We're not happy about this. Now, I, you're quite right what you said. We're hearing from them. Yeah, yeah, but that'll go away in a few days and we'll end up into a normal election. I don't think it's ever going to be a normal election. And for that reason, I wouldn't predict anything except to remember what we've learned in the past, Mike, which is, the campaign matters. How it unfolds is going to determine the outcome. And because of all the mail-in balloting, we yes. may not even know the election result on election night. It may yes. take the same as in 2017. It may take weeks to decide who won this thing. All right. Welcome back. As we continue with our live coverage and analysis of the election call in British Columbia, we got live coverage of Premier John Horgan coming up at the top of the hour. He will confirm the snap election in British Columbia is on October 24th is the expected election date. Let's check in with Jazz Johal now, Liberal MLA, to get the opposition's take on this. Jazz, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. What's your reaction to the election call? Well, you know, it's it was to be expected. It's not the right thing uh, when public safety and health, are, I think, should be and remain uh, the biggest priority for us as elected officials. We've got the highest ca- uh, cases of COVID per capita in this country, and we've asked uh, British Columbians to be safe, to follow Dr. Henry's uh, um, advice. Uh, and here we go with a, uh, an election call with elected officials uh, potentially knocking on doors, uh, more people out, uh, people needing to vote on election day. I know there's going to be mail-in votes, but it's really disappointing because at the end of the day, um, we have a set election date, and that was for next year. And for right. them to do this uh, was is really quite frustrating. I'll give you an example also, Michael. You know, this morning I was in a, a committee meeting looking into the Police Act, um, which is very important work when you look at the, the broader issues that society's been fo- facing and looking at. And we, this committee was announced in late July. And this week, we were starting a significant amount of um, uh, contribution and uh, testimony. And to hear that this is happening, uh, when these guys probably were cooking up this election idea just when they announced this at police committee anyway uh, in July is very frustrating. Quite frankly, it's diabolical. They shouldn't have done it. And uh, this has been in the books for a long time. As you know, in March, I was there with uh, 11 other MLAs, and we uh, agreed upon... Uh, emergency funding for COVID, $5 billion. $1.5 billion of that uh, was announced uh, just last week by the Premier and the Finance Minister. This has been sitting there since March. They could have prioritized it and sent it out uh, and helping uh, businesses uh, early on when it was really needed. Instead, they save it for a slush fund right before the campaign and announce it as some sort of business program when it should have been out of there much earlier. So this thing has been planned for a very, very long time. And you wonder why the public get very cynical, never mind public safety and health, but now to use $1.5 billion of this, fund, this stuff as a slush fund for their campaign is absolutely, for me, appalling. Thank you, Jazz, for coming on. My pleasure. Okay, that was a quick uh, reaction from the BC Liberals, Jazz Johal there, and they are angry about this election call. Uh, just joined by Keith Baldry right now. He just walked in, into the studio on a crazy day. Keith, real quickly, your uh, your take on the election call here. Yeah, I thought it was going to be tomorrow, but uh, yeah. I did think it was going to be October 24th. That's not yes. a surprise at all. We've yeah. been talking about October 24th, so it was just was it today or tomorrow. Interesting, he calls it today. This afternoon, we're going to get an update from Dr. Bonnie Henry on the weekend COVID numbers, and they're going to be huge. Uh, we've been tracking 120 a day, so we're going to have more than 300 cases, I would assume, 
today. Now, so more than 300 COVID cases on the same day as calling the election. What's wrong with this picture? Well, I think he's going to argue, yeah, it's a serious situation, uh, and I'm the guy to run the show. I'm the guy to manage the province in this pandemic. It's not the other folks. It's not Andrew Wilkinson. And I think uh, that's a roll of the dice, but it's, uh, I think the odds favor him uh, benefiting from that. Certainly in this pandemic, Andrew Wilkinson has disappeared. So he's not associated with COVID-19 in terms of leading the province through the crisis. He's given this uh, up to John Horgan and Dr. Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix. And those are the faces of the pandemic, and they will continue to be. Even though Bonnie Henry, of course, is a completely independent officer, she's not you know, part of the government, yeah. she will continue to give these briefings, I think, and very much remind people that we are in a pandemic. And I think Horgan is going to use this to illustrate he is the guy who's been in charge since the beginning, and he should continue to be. That's going to be his argument. Okay. Well, we got Richard Zussman on the line, global reporter, and uh, he's on the scene. Richard, can you hear me? I can't, Smitty. Okay, are you out in uh, Langford getting ready for Horgan's news conference? I am. Okay, what's the buzz oh, out you there? You got out there very quickly. What's the buzz I'm out a there? Fast driver, Keith. Uh, <laughs> so it's it's a suburban backdrop here, and I think that's the message, right? This election is going to be won in the suburbs of Metro Vancouver, and because he called it here in Victoria, we're going to have a look at you know a shed in someone's backyard in the beautiful hills of Langford, and it's going to set that tone of this sort of suburban election that. Horgan is looking out for you, British Columbians. He's the one that has guided us through COVID-19. He's the one that will deliver the recovery plan. And that's the message that he'll be feeding to voters every single day on the campaign trail. Okay. Do you think that um, he's expected to call October 24th will, will be the date? And do you ex- what kind of election is going to be? This is going to be a weird election. Yeah, he's going to have a campaign a, platform? Yeah, there'll be a campaign platform for sure. Will there be a campaign bus? Who knows? Yeah. Will there be a traditional tour? Who knows? I don't think so for either of those cases. Oregon will do events in part in person, but mainly using, you know, pool cameras and reporters asking over the phone. Some reporters will be able to go in person, but not as many as usual. There won't be any door knocking. And, and the big part, Smitty and Keith, there won't be these huge rallies, right? You know, we're so used to these massive election events. Like tonight, on the kickoff of the campaign, you would expect that all the major political parties would have a huge rally at 6 o'clock to feed into the 6 o'clock news. That's right. not going to happen tonight. This is a right. COVID election, and it's going to look very different. Okay, Richard, thank you for checking in. Yeah, thanks, Vinny. Okay, Richard Zussman, Global News reporter, on the scene there in Langford in uh, suburban Victoria. Uh, John Horgan's riding as he gets set to make it official at the top of the hour that this election is on in British Columbia. We're going to bring that to you live here at the top of the hour. I'm joined by Keith Baldry in the studio here. Keith, he made an interesting point about how Horgan wants to appeal to the, the suburbs of uh, not only Victoria, but of course Metro Vancouver, where the NDP pretty much kind of ran the table on the Liberals last time, and they really want to hold on to those seats in suburban uh, suburban Metro Vancouver and maybe pick up some more. I think they want to pick up some more. I think they got their eyes on Coquitlam Burke Mountain, won by Joan Isaacs of the BC Liberals by just a few hundred votes. They got Finn Donnelly running there, the former MP. Yeah. They've got their hearts set on winning that riding. And all they have to do is pick up little, just several ridings from, from the B.C. Liberals, and uh, and they've got their majority government. Yeah, they pick the pockets of the Liberals here in, what, three or four ridings, and uh, it's game over. So that's why that's why they're doing well, it, because they, they think they can they can run the table again and pick up a few more and get a majority government. Yeah, they got, uh, for example, here in on the island, in the capital, Oak Bay, Gordon Head, uh, Andrew Weaver not running again. They've got, the NDP's got Murray Rankin, 
former MP who won voters in Oak Bay as part of the Victoria federal seat. He's going to win. He'll probably win that seat. I would favor Murray Rankin picking that up. I would favor Finn Donnelly picking up that seat. Huh? Uh, now, the NDP's got a potential couple of vulnerabilities. Bob Deeth out in Maple Ridge yeah. won by only a few hundred votes. Can the Liberals, uh, who I think are a good candidate there, uh, but the NDP's also looking to knock off Sam Sullivan in Vancouver Falls Creek. They've got a pretty good candidate okay, there. Okay, it gets down to the riding by riding yep. battles, and that's where this thing will be won and lost. So this is going to be fascinating. Thank you, Keith. All right. A few hours ago, I met with the Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia, Janet Austin, and she has granted my request to dissolve the Legislative Assembly, and the general election will be held in British Columbia on Saturday, October 24th. Okay, there you go. It's official. That's BC Premier John Horgan announcing uh, the kind of the worst-kept secret in British Columbia over the last few weeks. Yes, British Columbians will go to the polls in a snap election this fall. He is not legally required to do this. He could continue to govern through next year. He is going now instead. We continue our full coverage and analysis of this big breaking story for you. Let's check in with the opposition now. My guest is Sonia Firstenau. She is the leader of the BC Green Party. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi. Hi, Mike. What's your reaction to the election call? You know, I think that this is an indication that John Horgan's actually out of touch with the reality of most people in BC right now. Most people are focused on seeing their kids back in school, worried about their health, worried very much about their finances, uh, about whether they're keeping their job or getting a job. And John Horgan has a lot of privilege and a lot of certainty in his life, and he thinks that this unnecessary election is a good thing to do at a time when we are feeling, as a province, more uncertainty and more anxiety than we've probably felt in over a generation. Yeah, there was a lot of irony there, I thought, in some of the things that he said, that he wants to put politics behind him at this point and go to an election. I don't think how you could get any more political than calling a strategically timed election like this to try and take advantage of your opponents in the polls. So a lot of the stuff he said I thought was bitterly ironic. But let me play this for you. Here he is a short time ago explaining why he believes this is the time for an election in B.C. I believe the best way forward is to put the politics behind us. Let's address the differences we may have now so that we can all come together after the 24th of October, focused as we should be on the needs of all British Columbians. I firmly believe that this is not a 12-month exercise. We have four years ahead of us where we all need to work together. And for 12 months to wait for the next election seems to me to be time wasted. Okay, that's what I'm talking about when he said put the politics behind us. How, how is he putting the politics behind him when he's calling an election like this? What you, Your thoughts? Well, he's putting politics front and center. We've yeah. had the most cooperative and collaborative uh, legislative year in probably the history of British Columbia, where all three parties did put politics behind them. Right. They did put the people front and center. We came together. We approved $5 billion in an emergency session on March 23rd. We had a, a hybrid session so that we could continue governing in the best interest of British Columbians. You know what? When he talks about it's not a one-year it's a four-year. This is what the oldest style of politics is about. These people think in four-year terms. They don't think about 10 years, 25 years, 50 years. That's why we're at where we are where we're at today. That's why we have an education system that's struggling as deeply as it is. That's why we're choking on the air for the last week and a half, because politicians think about themselves first and not the people that they are elected to serve. And this is the most uh, you know, egregious example in a global pandemic 
when people are are facing this kind of economic and health uncertainty, for this guy to be thinking that, you know, he has to be giving himself a four-year mandate because he can't possibly work with the rest of the legislature for a year, it's not true. And it is just a just such an insight into the way that this this party, the NDP, think of themselves in uh, in political terms. It's unacceptable. Speaking to BC Green Party leader Sonia, first to know on the election call just uh, announced by BC Premier John Horgan, one of the points that he stressed in in his comments was that uh, this pandemic will not be over in a year. So therefore. Uh, it's better to go now because whenever the election is called, if he waits right until the end of his mandate to October of next year in 2021, the pandemic will still be around anyway. Uh, is that make it any better going to the polls now? So I just listened to your newscast waiting to come on, and Britain has just announced that the COVID numbers there are going entirely in the wrong direction, that they're really they're really getting hit by a, a, what looks to be a very serious second wave. We're seeing numbers rising here in, in B.C. steadily over the last several weeks. Uh, the, the difference between now and a year from now is that we will know a lot more. We may well have a vaccine. We will have right. come through what this looks to be a fall and winter of second wave. Uh, you know, the notion that he can look into the future and think that uh, this is the best time. This is absolutely not the best time for an election. This is the time when he and his government should have leaned into the responsibility that they have to the people of B.C. first and foremost and not put themselves and their party first. Okay, he was also asked, of course, about the, the, the agreement that he signed with your party, uh, the governing agreement between the NDP and the B.C. Green Party. His signature is on it. Your signature is on it. And it says quite clearly in that document no snap election call. So he was asked specifically about that and about working with you and your party. I want to play this here for you. Here he is, uh, here is BC Premier uh, talking about uh, his relations with uh, my guest here, BC Green Party leader, Sonia know. Here's what the Premier said. I laid out for her the concerns I had following the summer uh, session of the legislature where Two significant pieces of legislation were not brought forward because we didn't have the support of the Green Caucus. And another uh, instance where uh, the Green Caucus amended a financial bill without discussing it with the Minister of Finance or anyone else. So uh, the evidence uh, speaks differently. But this, at the end of the day, is not about the confidence of the legislature. It's about the confidence of British Columbians. Okay, it's uh, Horgan speaking about BC Green Party leader Sonia Firstino, who is my guest there. So I guess he's making the case that things have not been as cooperative as, as it may appear and that you guys have not been cooperating. Your thoughts, your reaction? Agreement says that we have to support every bill, and that was made clear from the very beginning. And what he's saying is what he doesn't want is accountability. What he doesn't want is the capacity for a minority government to be able to wrestle with and work out how to work in the best interest of the British Columbians. And, and let me point out, of course, of course, we communicated very clearly and very regularly with the NDP about our intentions to amend a bill. And that amendment was an amendment to ensure that there is legislative oversight on government spending, that, that this government didn't bring back the capacity to issue itself special warrants with no legislative oversight on government spending. And I think that right. that was in the best interest of British Columbians to do that. What, what I think about, that accountability really matters. 
What about his point that he made in the in the clip we played that there were a couple of bills in, in the last legislative session that the, the Green Party did not support? He talked about an amendment that you guys brought forward to some other government bill that he says passed and that surprised them. Does that disqualify the agreement? I, or I guess I guess he's making the argument that not Mike. Okay. No, because the agreement is and it's right in the title. It's confidence and supply. We agreed to support every confidence bill the throne speech, and every supply bill, budget. And we did that. We held up our side of that agreement in every single way. And the only party that is breaking that agreement is the party that is led by John Horgan, because that agreement very clearly says there will be no snap elections. We will go to the polls in October of 2021. My signature is on it. I upheld my side of that relationship and that agreement. He did not. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Mike. Dr. Henry and Elections BC have worked very, very hard to make sure that British Columbians will not be putting themselves at risk. And just as we are going to work, just as we're going shopping for groceries, we can vote safely. There will be ample new opportunities through advanced voting as well as mail-in ballots to ensure that people can participate in our democratic process from the comfort of their own home. All right, BC Premier John Horgan making it official this morning. The election is on Saturday, October 24th. Horgan has called the election. Let's continue our coverage and analysis now. My guest is BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, you heard the Premier saying that this is going to be a safe election, no problem. Dr. Bonnie Henry has signed off on it. Your thoughts? Well, today, John Horgan clearly picked politics over people. You know, for no good reason whatsoever, John Horgan and the NDP have called an unnecessarily election because they think they can win. So let's be clear. This is a decision that was made in the middle of a global pandemic. It's not just irresponsible. It's wrong. The Horgan NDP team are the only ones who think this is a good time because we've got hundreds of thousands of people out of work. We've got the rapidly rising COVID count here in BC that is now the highest in the country per capita. And we've got the worries about schools where your reporters have been pointing out that parents are very worried about what's going to be happening in our schools as more and more schools come onto the table as having COVID problems. So it's a purely opportunistic move by Mr. Horgan that is very badly timed to my eyes. Okay, he said that one of the reasons he's doing this is that the the legislature is not working as well as it has been in the past, that they can't count on their partners in the Green Party anymore. They tried to vote against a couple couple of government bills in the last session. Is that an adequate explanation for going to the polls now? Well, let's get the record straight. In March, we said it's time to fight the virus, not each other. We have been supportive on the public health uh, picture for the last six months. During the summer, we voted with a tiny crew of people in the legislature to give them the extra $5 billion they asked for, really with very few questions asked. We had a very orderly summer session where we got everything that needed to be done underway, and we waited for six months for their pandemic uh, economic response plan. And guess what? They announced it three days before an election call, which means it can't be implemented by the civil service. Every other province did it in June. And somehow it was suitable to leave it until mid-September so that John Horgan could take advantage of it politically. I mean, people are entitled to be cynical about politics when they see this kind of thing. But we're going to have a better way of doing things. We've got to look forward. We've got to get people back to work. We've got to get people having a sense of safety in the schools. We've got to sort out this problem of massive growth of crime on our streets. There's no short of stuff to be done. And that gets done by having a government, which could still be in place, except John Horgan has just shut it down. 
Okay, Horgan was also asked what he expects from your party, the Liberal Party. Let me play this for you. Here's what Horgan said when he, what he expects from the Liberals. I believe the choice in this election is quite clear. The opposition will focus, as they have in the past, on the wealthy and the connected at the expense of the people that I represent here in, in, in Lankford. Okay, there you go. That's going to be a theme of this campaign. He's going to say, you guys are standing up for the rich and the powerful. He's on the side of the little guy. How do you respond? Well, that's a very tired NDP cliche. I mean, I've lived and worked all over British Columbia. I grew up in Kamloops. Our party represents people in every corner of this province from every part of our society. We're looking out for the interests of everyone in B.C. We want everyone to prosper, not just the friends of the NDP. Because when John Horgan's talks about taking care of people, he's talking about taking care of the 15% of the construction workforce that are allowed to work on government projects. The other 85% are just told to get lost. That's not working for everyone. And we are a party that's committed to making British Columbia a better place for everyone through higher education, job opportunities, investment in British Columbia, a safe and reliable health care system, and a school system that works for everybody. Okay, are you guys ready for this? I think one of the reasons that they're, they're calling this election is that they perceive that the Liberals are going to be caught snoozing or flat-footed, uh, that you've been kind of low-profile as an opposition leader in the last few months. I don't know, maybe that's deliberate because you've been working with the government, as you said, during this health crisis. But do, are you guys ready for an election? Does this, ca- does this catch you by surprise to some degree? We are absolutely ready. We're rolling out all kinds of really good, strong candidates. We'll have a a lot of candidates appointed the next week because the NDP have tried to ambush the people of British Columbia. And we are now ready to roll, and we are our candidates are highly motivated. Our caucus is totally united and on side, and we're finding that the volunteers and donations are just pouring in now because the uniform message is British Columbia is not on a good track. We're in the biggest crisis of our lives, and at this moment... John Horgan decides to try and keep his job at public expense. I mean, what kind of person does that? Where is values when he's not looking out for the people of B.C. in the middle of the worst crisis of their lives? Rather than that, he's trying to keep his job. Well, speaking of that, do you, do you think that there's a credibility issue or a trust issue here in this election, given that there's a signed document that was signed with a whole lot of hoopla and pomp and circumstance that he signed with the Green Party, the deal that put him into the premier's office in the first place, that says very clearly he will not do this. There will no be there will be no early snap election. We've got a, a fixed election date is set in law in this province, October of 2021. That's when the election is supposed to be. Yet he's calling an early one. What does that say about credibility or trust? And do you think that's a, an, an issue in this campaign? Well, I was listening to your show earlier, Mike, and you hit the nail on the head. This is about trust. They've got a signed agreement that would keep them in office till October of 2021. There's a fixed election date, and they changed the date by legislation to fix it in October of 2021. So nobody would be subject to surprises. It would be a very orderly process. We're in the middle of the worst pandemic we've ever seen and an economic crisis that's the worst that British Columbia has ever seen. And in the middle of all that, do you trust someone who says, you know, I'm just going to double-cross the people in the Green Party, call an ambush election, and try to keep my job because I'm floating up in the polls right now? What kind of person does that? Can you trust that person? Can you trust John Horgan and the NDP? That's a core question in this election. Okay, we just got about a minute. We just got about um, a minute uh, left here. Actually, we're just we're already out of time right now. In fact, but um, <laughs> but I want to thank you for yours and thank you for coming on. Anytime, Mike. I'm always ready to come on your show. All right, let's talk about this election now. My guest is 
Nathan Cullen, the former NDP MP for the riding of Skeena, Bulkley Valley in the House of Commons. He wants to run for the provincial NDP in this looming election. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Nathan Cullen, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, Mike. And you should know my father-in-law is a huge fan and listens every day. And tragically, good for us, he's on his way up north right now to visit and can't hear the show this morning. Oh, no. I know. I told him this morning and he was heartbroken. Okay, well, I'll tell you, you can tell him I'll post the podcast link later and then you can listen, you can okay. listen later. Okay, that's uh, very nice to hear. Let me, now, let me ask you what's going on here because, uh, what, first of all, let me ask you, why do you want to make a jump into provincial politics here and run for the NDP in the riding of Stikine? Well, I've, I've been watching this government for the last few years. It's been three, three and a half years almost since the last election and facing, obviously, some incredibly challenging times with a pandemic going on and all the economic and health concerns that come with it, how they've been able to manage this, handle this with compassion and I think a fair deal of courage and competence that my my life has kind of been about service. And uh, I was working here in Skeena and, and enjoying my life, uh, not traveling back and forth to Ottawa. And that call to service is still there. And when uh, Doug Donaldson just last week, I guess it was just a week ago today, it's time is t- taking on a different form right now, announced he wasn't reoffering. The Riding Association said the nomination had become open. Uh, I talked about it with my family a whole bunch and felt like this was a good place for us to be and for me to be in terms of offering myself up to this beautiful place up here in Stikine, which is in the northwest of BC, as you know. Okay, do you think it's it's responsible for this premier to call an election right now in the middle, as you mentioned, in the middle of a pandemic with COVID-19 cases on the rise? Yeah, it feels like we've we've gone, it, it, you know, this has been the, the first phase, I guess, um, is that facing the pandemic uh, front and center, changing all of the plans that were going on, that we're now talking about how do we live with this pandemic as Dr. Bonnie Henry and others have advised us? How do you manage life, the economy, kids at school, people going to work? And then how do you start to rebuild the economy from the damage and the hit that it's taken from having to shut things down, which I think was appropriate. And I I think the Horgan government got proper credit, Adrian Dix, the health minister, and Dr. Bonnie Henry with her steady hand of being able to take that initial shock. But that second phase, the how do you build it back? How do you get people back to work that have lost jobs? And how do you change the things that we need to change in our healthcare system requires a mandate. And this government, as you know, Mike, has been, it, it hangs by a thread, right? One or two votes and we're back into an election. We almost had one a few weeks ago. The Liberals almost toppled the government in August and then kind of maneuvered out of it. But at, at any point, uh, when you have a minority that is this slim, when you have power that is this close to not power, uh, it creates um, uncertainty. And what I think people are looking for right now is certainty so that they can plan their lives and worry about their things okay. and know that the government isn't going to fall at any second okay. and then throw every plan up into the air. I, I put it to you that there is no uncertainty. Uh, the government is not going to fall. Uh, there does not appear to be a, a fall sitting of the legislature scheduled at any point soon. Uh, this is a government that's survived every single confidence vote that it's faced in three years. Every single budget has passed, including the last one unanimously. The only reason 
that this guy is going to do this is a power grab. And, and I think that's very, very plain and evident to everybody. Would you be willing to admit that? That's why he's doing this. So, he's, he's calling this election because he's ahead in the polls. That's all. That's so, the only reason. So at various points, many points, the liberals have voted against the government in confidence votes. Um, at various points over time, the Greens have threatened to vote against the government in confidence votes. So what you see is maybe remarkable stability. And I will give credit to the legislature as a whole. In you know, Back in the spring, the partisanship seemed to be way down. People understood we were in a crisis and came together. But I'm seeing the relationship with the Greens get increasingly wobbly and the partisanship going up. And whether we have a, an election this fall or we have one next spring, or unfortunately next a year from now, all the experts are telling us it's going to be, quote unquote, a pandemic election. It's going to be under this uh, this reality that we've been living in. So we, we're the town I live in right now in Smithers is having a mayoral election. A bunch of towns around B.C. are having elections. When Dr. Bonnie Henry was asked, can we have elections even in a pandemic? She said, of course we can. And we need to be able to adapt okay. and keep life going, including our democracy, despite the fact that COVID is in our lives. Okay, I think the I think the election is unnecessary and it potentially backfires on the government here. I, we'll, we'll see, Nathan. We'll, we'll see how this goes. Let me ask you about this equity mandate issue now. Under the NDP uh, system, um, they've got an equity mandate that says if a male MLA steps down, which is the case in, in Stikine where you want to run, that the next candidate must be an underrepresented group. And it could be uh, a woman, an indigenous person, a racial minority, a disabled person, or a member of the LGBTQ community. You do not fit any of these profiles, Nathan. You're, you're a straight, able-bodied white guy. So how are you able to run in this riding? So first of all, the, the party in this government has got more than 50, I believe 50 or just slightly above 50% representation of men and women equity uh, candidates in their caucus and in their cabinet right now, which I think you, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's the first time in British Columbia's history. So they've got a, a outstanding track record of bringing more voices to the table. Oh. In the, the equity mandate you talk about is a rule that was put in place back in the early 2000s. And it says that in, like you say, when an incumbent steps down, yeah. the riding association has to go and seek and, and call upon people who are not, uh, you know, straight white males, essentially. Right. They uh, do that and they either find a candidate or if they can't, then they have the conversation with the party. If they feel like they can't do that, they've been unsuccessful, then the party opens up the nominations, which happened last Monday. Once, once that decision is made, because that's how the rule is built and, and respected, that's when I got my papers together, and I think last Wednesday submitted them, um, following all the rules and exactly letter of the law. So I'm totally confident, and I believe that this riding did do that search, but that's not my business. I don't sit on the executive. I don't make any of those decisions. Okay, what, um, about, a, what about Anita McPhee? So she is an Indigenous leader there in the, in the riding, a woman, obviously, and she says that she wants to run for the nomination and that she feels mm -hmm. she should get it under this equity mandate and that you should step aside. Will you, will you step aside for her? So, no, because as soon as the equity mandate, uh, the rules were followed, right? So the equity mandate, they did a search. They were unsuccessful, I believe, in that search. Again, this is not my 
work. This is how what I've been told. They be, how could they be unsuccessful if she's saying she submitted her paperwork to run, to seek the nomination? Because on last Monday, they opened up the writing. So Miss McPhee or anybody, and Anita's a friend, by the way, and I have a great deal of respect for her. So not, nothing uh, personal about this at all. She can, uh, I believe, as of Friday she hadn't, but maybe Saturday she had put her papers in. If she has her papers in order and is seemed as a candidate, then there'll be a nomination race. So that's fine. That's exactly how the equity mandate works. That's exactly how our rules work. So I'm comfortable with all of that, Mike. Like I think this is rules are there for a reason. We're being asked to follow and respect those rules. And everything I've seen from the local riding association and the party is exactly that. Well, you know, I don't think we want to see, you, you wouldn't say that she wouldn't be allowed to run on some sort of technicality. I mean, if she's a day late in filing her paperwork, I mean, if she says she wants to run, she's obviously a respected member and potentially a good candidate for the NDP. Uh, are you saying, therefore, that there would be a nomination contest between you and her? How would that work under the equity mandate? Yeah, if she's uh, successful, because I had to apply as well. It's like applying yeah. for a job, right? They have a big, long thing. You've got to get 10 members of the local riding association in good standing to sign your papers. There's 250 people here. So that's, I wouldn't say either of those things are huge bars to overcome. And then you have a nomination race. Uh, that's the rules. I mean, I'm a Democrat. I believe in democracy. I believe in following the rules that are put in place and respecting them. And that's exactly well, what we've done. Well, is the rule that there is going to be a nomination race or is the rule that the candidate must be uh, an underrepresentative underrepresented candidate in this case no, as, as, so let's go back again so as soon as uh the riding association that was operating under the equity mandate says yeah. we made our level best efforts these are all the things that we do and i trust them I, I i know some of these executive people they believe in this mandate to their bones so this is i believe they did a good work i'm trusting that as soon as the riding is opened up as for an open nomination then that's what we're in right now Okay, so, so you you will not, but you will not step aside for her. Bottom line. Well, no, because I'm following the. Well, as soon as the nomination was opened, all right, I got my papers together. The party recently accepted me as a candidate. If other candidates step forward, like normal, like you've seen hundreds of these, Mike, then you have a nomination race, and then on we go. But the bottom line is, people in Stikine right. will be the ones who decide, not you nor I, and that's the way it ought to be. All right. I'm following it very closely, to say the least. Nathan Cullen, thank you for coming on the show. Anytime, Michael. Uh, all right. Welcome back. Let's talk about fines for Doring now. New fines for mortar has caught Doring cyclists. They go into effect today. Doring refers to when the occupant of a vehicle opens the door without looking into the path of an oncoming cyclist. Back in July, the B.C. government announced plans to quadruple the fine for Doring. Have a listen to this report now from Global News. If you ask cycling advocates, they'll tell you the bike lane on West Esplanade is in need of an upgrade. You've got two lanes of heavy arterial traffic with trucks and buses, and then on the other side you've got parked cars, and their doors open actually across the bike lane. Don Piercy with Hub Cycling says the lanes leave no room for error, something made painfully clear back in January when Mike McIntosh was killed. A car door suddenly swung open, forcing the 55-year-old cyclist into the path of a dump truck. We're now learning 59-year-old Patrick Timothy Caldwell faces a charge of unsafely opening a door under the Motor Vehicle Act. 
It seems it seems really low considering that someone someone died. Richard Campbell with the BC Cycling Coalition says calls are mounting for tougher consequences around bicycle collisions and fatalities on BC roads. We're recommending higher fines for Doring in general. If people are hurt or killed, uh, I think there should be higher fines or penalty or perhaps even jail time for, for such offenses. All right, it's a nightmare scenario for cyclists. You're speeding along the road there, and all of a sudden a door opens up in front of you. Ouch, yeah, that could be uh, catastrophic, really, and typical in an accident caused by dooring. So let's talk about the fine now that is in place today for dooring offenses. My guest is Kyla Lee, criminal lawyer with Acumen Law. I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Kyla. Thank you for having me back. Thanks a lot for doing this. Okay, so how much is the fine now for dooring a, a cyclist? It is a lot more than it was for uh, excessive speeding. It's it's uh, increased uh, four four times, I believe. So it's over three hundred dollars. Right. So it's three hundred and sixty eight dollars, and the previous fine was just eighty one dollars. So yeah, yeah like the- quadrupled. Yeah. Go ahead. Previous fine was way too low, um, yeah. but this fine I think is way too high. <laughs> Okay, why do you think that's too high, 368 bucks? Like, if you open your car door without looking and you hit a cyclist, I mean, that could kill someone. That could kill somebody, but yeah. you have to look at all of the different offenses in the Motor Vehicle Act that have various fines. Regular speeding, which could kill people and does kill a lot more people than Doring does every year, has only a $138 fine. Um, driving without due care and attention um, has a $368 fine, and that's probably the most serious offense that we have in the Motor Vehicle Act for driving behavior. Running a red light, which kills hundreds of people every year, uh, the fine uh, for that is only $167. So you're not seeing sort of a a connection between the severity of the consequences that can come from the driving behavior and the amount of the fine. Well, I guess you could argue that this new fine for dooring is too high, or maybe you could say the fines for all those other offenses you just mentioned are too low. I suppose you could say that. The problem is that we've seen that increases in traffic signs don't really change people's behavior. And a perfect example of that is the distracted driving tickets. When they were first implemented, the fine was a lot lower. It's gone up. They've added points. They've made the consequences worse. And even though they've done that, distracted driving continues to be a pervasive problem on the road. Okay. What is the definition of this offense, dooring? How do they actually describe it in the law? What is it? It's opening a door when it's unsafe to do so. So the fine isn't for hitting a cyclist with your door or hitting a pedestrian with the door. It's just for the action of opening the door when it's not safe to open it, regardless of whether or not anybody's hit. Okay, and how do they define that? What's not safe? Like if there's a a cyclist nearby or the the driver does not look in the mirror to check, how how do they quantify that or define it? There's no real definition in the Motor Vehicle Act, so it just comes down to an assessment of the surrounding circumstances, and there's a lot of subjectivity. If an officer sees somebody open a door and they believe it was unsafe, they can ticket the driver for it, even though the driver might have taken actions like checking in their mirror, shoulder checking, and then opening the door when they believed that they had ample opportunity to do so. Okay, do you think in the application of this law, typically it would involve a a cyclist that's hit or almost hit by, by a car door? That would probably maybe trigger the uh, event, the fine, the ticket. Yeah, a cyclist, another yeah. vehicle, a pedestrian, anybody who's hit or almost hit would be yeah. the likely circumstances to trigger the ticket. Okay. Do they hand out a lot of these tickets, you know, for dooring? 
these tickets are very rare. And part of the problem is in order to ticket a driver for it, the officer usually has to be able to witness the events in order to be able to say that the door opening was unsafe and not that the the person was not paying enough attention to where they were going and assessing for risks themselves that allowed them to get hit by the door. Police in these situations tend to come to the scene after the event has taken place, not while it's occurring. Okay, uh, Global News reporting that they did a, a re- some research on this and found that there were 370 dooring incidents in Vancouver over a, over a period between 2009 and 2013, but just 22 tickets handed out. So like you again, said, it appears to be a pretty rare ticket. A very rare ticket and also you know, very difficult for the police to gather the evidence necessary to prosecute the ticket because they have to have a statement from the person who was doored, um, who may not want to call the police. They may want to get along uh, with their day. They might not be that injured or not feel that injured in the moment and feel injured later on. And so you, you find out about the dooring incidents more from the ICBC reports that are filed than from the actual instances of ticketing. Okay, Kyla, you mentioned distracted driving, and it's interesting to hear the police now on a uh, an advertising blitz right now. I heard some ads on CKNW this morning saying, we're coming to get you if you're distracted driving, and we've got lots of new techniques to catch you, uh, including if you look at your phone, you touch, you touch your cell phone while you were sitting at a red light, for example, which seems to be the most common way people get caught. If they're sitting at a red light, traffic is stopped, they think, well, it's okay for me to quickly check my phone. That's when the cops can get you. Do they set up around uh, intersections looking for people who are looking at their phone? They do. They do consistent enforcement at many major intersections, um, just pacing up and down lines of cars, hiding behind bushes, and running out when they see somebody pick up their phone or when they see somebody looking down to peer in the window and see what they're doing. It's kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. (laughs) Right. And what's the fine for that? $368 plus four penalty points. Same as Doring, then? Well, Doring doesn't carry penalty points, though, which is surprising to me. Okay. Uh, Do you think the fine for distracted driving is also too high? I, I think that the fine for distracted driving is too high because it doesn't capture sort of the spectrum of conduct, right? Quickly glancing at your phone at a red light compared to holding it up to your ear and talking while you're driving down the highway or worse, texting while you're in motion. Those things are all varying levels of, of danger and risk to the public, but they're all treated the same way as far as the consequences go.